Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box. Hello and welcome to March's Outside the Box. I am joined by Jen. Hello. And Mick. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> Just a stunned silence. This is why I don't have any friends. Uh, um, it's been a while since we've done one of these because, just because it has, I, I've been poorly, we've not been, been in a studio, etc, etc. So, because did we even do one in February? Yeah, yeah, we did one last month, but I think we did it quite early in the month and this is quite late in the month. Yes, because we hadn't had a chance to watch Bojack Horseman, which was actually out at the end of January. Bojack Horseman and The Stranger were what we were waiting for. Yeah, mm. we were. So, I haven't really got any news to tell anyone, so we'll just crack on with what we've seen. And I might as well start with Bojack Horseman, because it was quite a long time ago, but it's still worth mentioning because it's ended. So, Mick and I have both watched that. I actually watched it before Mick did, so I needed to ring somebody up and say, what did you think of that? And I rang my brother and he said... I thought it was excellent, but I don't know how it still calls itself a comedy. No. And I think that is a a very good point to make. And actually, oddly, the structure of the series, whereby it did what a lot of series do when they come to an end, it made lots and lots of callbacks, kind of reminded you how little comedy there is in it now, because it it revisited some long-running comedy bits in it, like, for example, Mr Peanut Butter had to get a sign made, and... Those sign jokes were oh, my favourite thing in it. And there hasn't so been much. a sign joke for absolutely ages. And the whale on the news. Yeah. I like the whale on the news and the news that runs the, the ticker tape that yeah. runs beneath the whale. I've got to say, I agree. I totally agree with Chris on that one. And it had it's become a drama. But what it did do in this last section of this last series that it hadn't done for ages was more of the animal stuff. Yes. Where it made sort of like, well, this is part man, part budgie, so we'll make a budgie joke and, and various things. And I don't feel like they'd had that in the last couple of seasons, but it came back for those last six episodes. Yeah. Like seven episodes? Six or seven, wasn't it? Yeah. But I mean, there was nothing like, I think the last really big joke in this was back probably in series five when um, Todd created Henry Fondler, which <laughs> was the funniest thing that I think Bojack Horseman has ever done. And with its of mice and men ending. Yeah, yeah, which was just so insane. <laughs> Because, again, and I'm not going to criticise it for it, because it came to a slightly disrupted end. A lot of storylines felt rushed. There was a the storyline that started in the first half of the series, which had Stephen Rupert in it as Jeremiah White Whale that just kind of vanished. Oh, of course, yeah. That storyline just didn't really go anywhere. I don't know if I'd care so much if it hadn't been Stephen Root playing him, because I just want more Stephen Root. Todd's re connection would probably be the word with his mum also felt quite rushed because they didn't really have the time and also the other thing that happens with all things like this is you have the main character be that Bojack Horseman be that Walter White be that Tony Soprano and then you have the surrounding cast and in the last series they always pair it back down to being about the main character because that's what it's about so then you end up sometimes with other characters feeling slightly shortchanged because they haven't necessarily got the full story, particularly when they only had seven episodes to do it in. Yeah. When I think they probably would have gone on for a number of more series. In the end, it reminded me of Mad Men in that it came down to that very last episode of Mad Men where Don makes 
three phone calls at the end of Mad Men. And they're to the three most important people in his life. And Bojack Horseman has a similar thing here. Mm-hmm. It's about how he comes to the end of his relationship, not or an end of a relationship with Princess Carolyn, with his daughter, not his daughter, but his, his actually his sister, who he thought was his daughter for quite a while, Hollyhock, and with Diane, Diane, who is essentially his best friend. And I think the biggest success of this series of, of Bojack Horseman is regardless of what happened to him legally, regardless of what ha- what financial, reputational and sort of criminal repercussions he's faced for the actions that he made. Actually, it was how it affected those three relationships that are probably like the most important thing, particularly the fact that Hollyhock never spoke to him again, which was actually really sad, I thought. It was really sad. It was really sad. It also had some really clever moments, which is what made Bojack so magical. Like the, the stuff they can do because it's animated. Yeah. Because the, this animal-human hybrid, the episode, I think, it, I think there was seven, and it was episode six, where he's almost at death's door, literally yeah. death's door, was fucking clever. Really good. And had Lin-Manuel Miranda back. Crackerjack is Crackerjack. Who, that's Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is always nice uh, to, to see him in absolutely anything, I think. Yeah. So I thought it was incredible. It did make me, because as Hannah's already mentioned, there's so many callbacks. And I kind of had a handle on them in the first part of this series. But with that weight and with all of the callbacks rushing at you, I was like, right, I want to go back and watch BoJack from the beginning. And just keep it all in my brain at once. And I will absolutely do that because it's it's some of the best television that's happened in such a long time. Yeah, I think it's absolutely cracking. I mean, it had some nice jokes, yes. Uh, I just tapped Hannah's notebook because she's written down. Because I discovered something. I mean, I can't be the only person to discover it. But the fact that I did and nobody else that I've spoken to seems to. We actually learned what Judah's surname was, which is Man Now Dog. Judah Man Judah now, Man dog. <laughs> which I liked a lot. Yes, the episode in which they basically he has to tell Princess Caroline, Diane, and Todd all of the bad stuff he's done because they're trying to do some reputational damage on him. They do it on a big whiteboard, and it really reminded me of. Do you remember when Mr. Peanut Butter lost the Oscar nominations and they <laughs> had to make up Oscar nominations? And you need to take a screenshot of that and then just go back and read it because it's the stuff they don't even mention that's written on the board behind him. That of the bad stuff he'd done, some of that was so funny, but you actually have to stop, pause it, and read it because they're never going to mention it. It's just them having fun writing stuff about yeah. king people's cars <laughs> and weird stuff like that. And I love that Todd just keeps going back and adding to it, like left me in prison. Yeah. <laughs> just all of the stuff he's done to Todd is horrendous. Yeah. And it is Todd who actually says, "You're right. You're absolutely right. There is nothing illegal here." But a lot of it is really sketchy. As sketchy yeah. is the word that he uses. Yeah. And that is the point that uh, the Bojack Horseman has made all the way through. There's I, a difference between things that are illegal and things that are still wrong. I think it's a, it's an incredible portrait of a powerful man, albeit a horseman, <laughs> in Hollywood today. Yeah, agreed. Home, which now also seems quite a long time ago. Channel 4, Series 2 of Rufus Jones series about uh, a family that find an asylum seeker hiding in their car and decide to take him in and look after him while he tries to get residency in the UK. It wears its heart on its sleeve way more, I think, than any other 
television series out there at the moment. It's so openly bleeding heart liberal that I fucking love it. It actually doesn't even pretend to be anything but really positive and welcoming and about, you know, the difference. And by that, I mean, there is a difference between us and people who are trying to come here, but it's not the difference we think it is, if that makes sense. The difference is their life experiences, not the people that they are. And he really drives that point home. Yusuf Kirkor is continues to be brilliant, as does uh, Rebecca Staten, who's so great. But actually, like, top prize to Rufus Jones, because he has been hanging out with Julia Davis professionally for a really long time. And you can really, really see her influence. And there is a scene in this that, oh my fucking God, I don't know any man that would write himself that scene and put himself through filming that scene, apart from Rufus Jones, who is entirely stark bollock naked for, I would say, two or three minutes in it <laughs> and then throwing the most amazing fit and like I say very influenced by Julia Davis but I would say also influenced by that Stuart Lee Partridge thing of repeating it so much that it's no longer funny but then carrying on until so it starts to become funny ever, again yeah. and yeah I'm a big fan of home you can find it and just plow through it in an evening probably both series in an evening if you really put your mind to it and I like it a lot I, I definitely want to watch it yeah. It's on my to-watch list. But the only thing is, it's on Channel 4, isn't it? It is. Adverts. So you get bored of those adverts really quickly. Yeah. And Channel 4 is terrible. Sky, and, well, we know this because of podcasting. But, you know, most people who apply adverts don't apply adverts to 100% of views mm. or listens. So if you're listening to the whole of Romaniacs catching up or whatever... You don't hear the same adverts over and over again because eventually they get wise to the fact that you're actually listening to shitloads of them and there is no point still advertising. In fact, it's the anti-Stuart Lee. It doesn't ever become funny again. Yeah. It just becomes annoying. Channel 4 doesn't have that mm. every single fucking time. The same adverts over and over and over again, which is exhausting. But I don't know if you watch it through, if you watch that through something else. Like, for example, you can watch Channel 4 stuff through Sky that perhaps you don't get as many adverts. Interesting. We'll investigate. You should, because it's very good. Should we stick with comedy? Okay. This Country is also back. I like This Country. It's got a... The, the weird thing about it is, we've had this conversation before, it's like a lot of other stuff, and you have to get over how it's like a lot of other stuff. You have to get uh, over the fact that Curtin is not Gareth from The Office. Yeah, yeah. and other stuff like that. And, and then once you've got over that, it, you start to see it for what it is, and it is funny. And they are both really, really great at that deadpan saying stuff that's fucking ludicrous, but in such an earnest fashion. Curtin has a few lines that are in this that are along the lines of, well, I mean, I know some people might think that makes me an idiot, but I am what I am. <laughs> like, that's a good reason for, for being anything. I think what comes really clear in this is it's always been a kind of a thing about the two of them is... You can, they can never be both be sensible at the same time. One of them is always the one that's being behaving like an idiot or stupid or stupidly or and by stupid I mean like they irrationally, but also just densely, just like what the hell are you saying? So the question always is: is which one of them is actually the sane one and which one is the mad one? And this one, it feels like it becomes more clear that actually it's Curtin who is quite sane, and it's her that is really troubled. And I kind of like that. I kind of yeah. like that, that it's her that comes across less sympathetically because that's, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, I I haven't watched this one. I don't know if I finished the first series, but I think from the ones that I watched, 
Yeah, like she, she's like she's the tricky one. For yeah, sure. I mean, she, even in the first episode, she pays a child to plumb her house. <laughs> she's like, I can't. Is it the first episode where she's like hanging out with her mates and it transpires they're all like yeah, they're all children, twelve children, years yeah. old. Yeah, but that said, if you've grown up in a small town yeah. or a village, there are people like that in it. There always. are, but they're often considered quite odd. Yeah, but that's the point. They yeah, are odd. Yeah. She is odd. Yeah. He, I think, has more skills in the, to, to use in the real world than she does. But, yeah. So, one more comedy thing. Should we do inside number nine? Yes, please. It's been me talking a lot, so do you want to start? or Inside number nine is back for its fifth series. Season? No, it's British. It's fifth series. Yeah. And the quality is just chef's kiss. My favourite so far has absolutely been episode two. Yes. For various reasons. And it's just, it's an absolute, it's a standout one, whether you know the characters or not. But if well, you do know the characters, I think it makes it better. I don't think we can talk spoilerly about it. That's why I was very, very... No, I think we can be spoilery. Oh, do you uh, think? I think it's been on long enough that we can be spoilery about it. The, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, 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 what would you call it, mashup of, essentially, of... Inside number nine and, and Psychoville. Psychoville. And what I will say is, I think that the vast majority of people I know who didn't watch Psychoville didn't like it. Oh, really? Yeah. Because there were enough in jokes in there that clearly it didn't work. I mean, quite a few people have said to me, oh, well, who, they were just horrible. And you're like, well, they kind of are, They're like the characters, the sour butts. But they've been horrible for long enough that it's funny, in my mind. Whereas. Obviously, they're so horrible for a new mind that perhaps they... Yeah, I guess that whistle-stop tour of their horror love story, mum and son love story, yeah, maybe doesn't do them justice. But it's so good. It did repeat the greatest joke I think they've ever written, which is that David uh, recites a bit of a poem for his mother as she's dying, and she says... Who said that? Who said... Who wrote that, David? Did you write that, David? And he said, no, John Dunn. And she said... Is John Diddy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's my favourite joke in Psychoville as well. So and they funny. did it; they repeated it. It was very, very good. Yeah. Um, but Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith are just—I want to—I want to lick their brains. Yeah, their minds are so inventive. Everything's still really fresh. They know horror backwards. They know comedy backwards. They're not scared to try new stuff. Yeah. There's a bit. There's a lot of Grand Guignol in there. They're just the, the pantomimic, but in a really fun way. I've written here. They write the most innovative, innovative stuff on TV. I and would they really agree do. with you. And as a, a genre, anthology TV is perfect because it means that they can do whatever the hell they like with it. And they have. They've written. They've had episodes that were. There was no talking. There's an episode that's entirely an iambic pentameter. Brilliant. You know, there was an episode. That's done in no, actually, there's a Psychoville episode that's done in a single take, which is it's two takes, but yes, was way ahead of its time. Yeah, and the reason it works so beautifully is because it's all the League of Gentlemen coming back together. Because yeah. Mark Gatiss is actually in that, and film. also because it's based on Rope, which Hitchcock did yeah. in one take. So that the whole thing works just so brilliantly. And so they mess around with structure, and they do so much within half an hour that you get these really well established. The first episode which I actually watched last, oddly, 
because of course it doesn't matter with this, but I actually watched last just because of the way it kept rolling on on the iPlayer mm-hmm. when I was watching them, which is David Morrissey and obviously Shearsmith and Pemberton. And, friend, friend of the show, David yeah, Morrissey. Uh, and Ralph Little. Friend of the monkey quiz. <laughs> how they work, how those characters are established in such an incredibly short space of time yeah. is incredible. Like, genuinely great. I mean, you know, from the minute you, that, that Rhys Shearsmith comes out of the toilet and says, don't go in there for like 20 minutes, you know who he is. Yeah. You absolutely know who he is. And it's, it's so clever. It reminds me of a programme that I absolutely loved as a kid, and that was Tales of the Unexpected. Yeah. And I think, I think people might shoot me down here. Maybe not. I think they are as talented storytellers as Roald Dahl. Absolutely. When it I comes agree. to that strange creepy unusual worlds they they nail it they do one that's full-on drama and actually almost like sort of kind of please daily type drama in it which is the one that's done with the advent calendar yeah yeah what's it called it's something about love but it's all done over yeah the christmas period and it's it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking they've got a new podcast which i would quite like to listen to called inside 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 number Number nine Nine. yeah i've seen an advert for it we're going to take a break. We're going to talk about drama. And there's actually another kind of cross-pollination of two television series that I enjoyed that's, that will be coming up in drama. So that's something mm. to hang on listening to. You, you know I love a Venn diagram. <laughs> so, welcome back. Jen. I believe you have been trying to get your eyes on Noughts and Crosses, but you haven't managed yet. So can you tell us, uh, just tell us a little bit about it? Um, Okay, so it's based on the very popular, I'm going to say best-selling because I imagine it is, although I can't back that up with an actual, with any actual knowledge at this point in time, um, series by Mallory Blackman, who I spoke to for the podcast last year because she had just published, I think, the fifth instalment. And there's going to be another one, she said. So it's young adult fiction, but I think it's on at like nine o'clock on a Thursday night. Hmm. Interesting. I think. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of interesting in itself. So I'll be, you know, I'll be, I've said interesting too many times, but I'll be interested to see like why and how and, and, and what. So basically the premise of the book is that it's kind of, I guess, a dystopia don't know you'll correct me if i'm wrong on that but it's basically an imagined world whereby there are like two races of people uh the noughts and the crosses and basically what she's done is she's flipped the power dynamic between like white people and black people but the white people basically are like a sort of like second class citizens and the black people are in charge of everything and it's basically kind of about basically this guy becoming radicalized i suppose and then all of the all of the sort of fallout from that and it, it goes on for yeah she's written five books and there's a sixth one coming out and um i think they're really great i think it's a really clever idea and you should absolutely listen to the interview i did with her um, if you want to know a bit more about the who's, the what's, the why's. But I'm really looking forward to watching it. It's got quite a good cast. Pat Joe. Sorry? Pat, Patterson Joseph. Yeah, yeah. Pat Joe. Helen Pat Baxendale. If you, if you, Hellbox. <laughs> and a little, I think, fairly fairly minor part for Man of the Hour, Stormzy. So, yeah. Stormzy. Oh, that doesn't no. just work yeah. on its own. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it... it 
I've seen sort of good things on the Twitter. I'm looking forward to watching it. Great. Anybody else watching any dramas? Yes. Yes. We both watched the same one, didn't we? What did we watch? We watched The Stranger. Oh, yeah, I watched something else as well, yeah. I've watched something else as well. I don't know whether it's a drama, though. It's kind of one of those many different things, and therein lies the problem. But should we talk about The Stranger? Go on, then. So The Stranger, which is a Netflix series, and it is Jennifer Saunders' first serious role. Yes. I think that was why we were interested. Mm. It's also Siobhan Finneran who is excellent in it. She's really, really good. And she plays, guess what? A no-nonsense copper. Uh. (laughs) Um, She's a copper. She takes no nonsense. She may or may not be going through a divorce. She's not sure yet. And it's it's a weird one. So it's six episodes. Mm. Basically, a stranger, a strange young lady shows up at a football ground to tell our lead character whose name I forget but he's played by someone quite famous Richard Armitage Richard Armitage that his missus faked a pregnancy and then faked a miscarriage Dervla Kerwin and she says there's more to it than this he's trying to work out one why she did it two who this bird is who's told him and it's this stranger goes around and tells people stuff about their lives reveals secrets in exchange for money or like I will reveal this to everyone unless she blackmails people but she doesn't blackmail Richard Armitage or indeed Giles from Buffy from Buffy Uh, Anthony Head does not get blackmailed either so there's like what's going on there Uh, Jennifer Saunders gets blackmailed it's it's all a, a riddle wrapped in an enigma slapped around some mystery and it's very watchable it's very watchable indeed but it's a bit silly. It's so silly. It's quite obvious, I found. Mm. And there was a scene that absolutely like just made me go, no, I will watch the end of this. But it really annoyed me where uh, a man, a male character gets a lot of screen time to explain just why his wife deserved murdering. Oh, right. Nice. And it made me fall out with it, to be honest, because I just don't think we need that anymore. And it, it seemed unnecessary. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to, for sorry about the pun, but if you want to kill six hours. Yeah, I, it wasn't really for me, to be honest. I thought it was really silly. Like, Jen loves an ITV drama. I mean, yeah. I've, I've been watching an ITV drama, which I can, I can tell you about very briefly. Is it Dobbs and McDonald's? <laughs> no, it's, okay. uh, it's, it's, have I seen you somewhere before? Yoan Gruffith, the liar. <laughs> anyway, we'll oh, come yeah. back to that. Uh, equally silly. Who'd have thought it? An ITV drama. A bit silly. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I just thought it was really silly. And some of some of the acting in it was not good. Jenny Saunders was great. I mean... She's not in it for a obviously, amount of time. She's excellent. But they... Yeah, she's... she's yeah. What Mick said. Great. Well, no. No, 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 not really. Were you not listening? No, I kind of make great that you watched that. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. So I watched Last Tango in Halifax, which has been off air for ages. Mm. Um, She's been busy, mate. She has been incredibly busy. Sally Wainwright's drama, mm. BBC. I think this is maybe series five, but because of how busy Sally Wainwright is. Um, a series, it kind of gets a bit Sherlocky in a, oh, it's actually only two episodes, but we're going to call it a series because it's oh. going to be such a long gap between between now and the next one. So I think this counts as series five, but a lot of the series have only had two or three episodes in them. 
but it's it's been a while since I think it's been like two or three years since there's been an episode of Last Tango in Halifax. It's based on the a true story, which is that Sally Wainwright's mum met up with her first boyfriend when she was in her seventies, and they fell in love and got married like really quickly. Aww. Oh, which is quite sweet, it's really obviously. Lovely. But nonetheless, uh, romance is not my bag, and this is definitely Sally Wainwright's romance story. And as such, it is my least favourite of all the stuff that she does. But it's still a shitload better than a lot of stuff that's on telly. Because all the other things that drive her, which is a fair representation of women, a fair representation of the North, a fair representation of working class people, is still there. So I still enjoy that stuff. Celia, who I really hope isn't actually directly based on Sally Wainwright's mum, because I find her to be an incredibly gracing character. In fact, I think only my own mother can annoy me as much as Celia does. Not for the same reason. Celia's quite bigoted and not very nice a lot of the time. Quite homophobic and God bless my mum, she's none of those things. But actually what I quite enjoyed about this series is she actually gets called out for it a lot, which she hasn't in the past. And that's one of the things I found quite annoying about Last Tangle in Halifax is because it's so realistic in the sense of when your mum or mother-in-law or whatever you stepmom or whoever says shit like that, you have to put up with it because they're in your family. And that's realistic, but it doesn't necessarily work with the principle that you'd quite like to see her have some repercussions for being a bit of a monstrous old biddy sometimes. And that is actually fixed in this. Celia does get called out quite a lot. I mean, Nicola Walker is always fantastic, as is Sarah Lancashire. And I did say earlier about there being a mashup. There was a glorious moment in the third episode of this where I don't know what the actress's name is, but she plays a copper. Nicola Walker's character lives in Halifax. And she, this character who's been in it a lot, turns up and she plays a copper. Now, the set, that, that actress also plays the wife of Ashley in the first series of Happy Valley. He's the guy that runs, like, the uh, the campsite. Is he the rich guy? He's the guy that Steve Pemberton gets, invo- gets involved right. in. Oh, in yeah, 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 yeah. And he has a wife who runs a hairdressing salon. Yeah. So she plays her in that, okay? So, of course, Sarah Lancashire is in Happy Valley. There's a point at, at which uh, Nicola Walker's sheep's sheep get out somebody leaves gate open they get out I was hoping there'd be a sheep involved in the story and they charge they end up going through and eating a load of weed that someone's growing illegally at the side of the road getting stoned and then just crashing into the town centre of Halifax which I thought that sounds reasonably familiar to the sheep rustling story that opens the second series of Happy Valley so the copper turns up the copper who plays someone both in this and in Happy Valley and says to Nicola Walker I don't know why you've been Stressy with me, you should consider yourself lucky that Sergeant Kaywood didn't get called out for this. And I actually had a little Aww. cheer because they mean that they exist in the same universe, which I find quite lovely. I lived in Halifax for 14 years and never saw any sheep related yeah. nonsense, and I'm disappointed, frankly. Yeah. So that's all of mine on drama. That's the only drama I've actually managed to watch. I do have some stuff to say about some documentaries, but if we're sticking with drama, Tell me about the ones that you've watched. Do you want me to segue seamlessly into another Nicola Walker? Yes, why not? Okay, so I've watched The Split, which is about a family sort of legal business. They're all lawyers, that means. Um, And so it's a mum who runs it and her daughters, Nicola Walker, and her two sisters, 
can't remember who plays him. Sorry. And so Nicola Walker has kind of like left the family business to go and work somewhere else. She's married to Stephen Mangan. They've got kids and it's all kind of about like... Well, it's all about relationships, really. Um, it's So I had to watch the first series in order to watch the second series. That's sensible. And I've got to say, I was I watched them all, like both series, because they were all available on iPlayer at the same time. So I rattled through all of them in about a week, two weeks. Um, I found it very, very watchable indeed. I talked to you a bit about this before, Hannah. They are all lawyers, so they are fucking rich they've got very big houses and they drink a lot of red wine and whiskey of an evening not that i have any kind of issue with that but um i thought it occurred to me when i was watching it i should find how minted they are because they they live in like big old london house like proper nice houses and i should find this like a bit alienating but like it I think the characters are very, very relatable, so it's not. Well, I mean, Succession's amazing, but you don't necessarily relate to the characters. I don't think you have to think, oh, yeah, they could be my mates to like something. No, but I mean... I suppose if they're lawyers, though, I mean, they earn that money. Yeah. I mean, in Succession, they haven't even earned that cash, have they? They're just being... It's being thrown yeah. around willy-nilly. Just writhing in it like me in my toilet roll. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's, yeah, I thought it was very watchable. And uh, I, I dare I say, hope there'll be a third series. If there is, I'll watch it. Good. Lovely stuff. I watched some crazy yet entertaining nonsense on Netflix called Lock and Key. L-O-C-K-E. And yeah. key. Oh, please tell me that's a buddy cop drama. No. Oh, no. I, just for a moment, I was like, that's going to be amazing. Lock and key. It's almost as good as what my. What did Jackie my Chan and Chris Rock back after? Fake Will and Tar. Fake Will and Tar, which is what my mum called Scott and Bailey. That yeah. is lovely stuff. Alas, no. <laughs> uh, the Lock family. Uh, their dad has just been murdered, so it's a cheery old start, and mm. they go back to his family pile in uh, somewhere in the outskirts of some okay. American town. And so their family name is Locke, and within this sort of mansion of haunted proportions, there are various keys scattered around that the little kid can hear them talking. There's two brothers and a sister, elder brother, middle sister, and then little boy, and Kobe, I think he's called. And he can hear these keys talking to him. He starts talking to a lady down a well. And then the keys do weird things like they can turn you into a ghost or you can get inside your own mind and various things. Like a key that you open a door. Yeah, like a lock and key. Like okay. it says, very much says on the tin. And Netflix, it's the algorithms again, right? Yeah. It is based on a graphic novel of the same name. But it's very much going, do you know what people like? They like Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's give them something like Stranger Things. And it's it's fun to watch. It, I mean, it doesn't change your world in any way, but it's nice sort of switch off telly, and it's got some interesting special effects. What I would say is, I sort of hinted at this earlier, it doesn't really know what it wants to be, and that gets a bit frustrating. It doesn't really know who it's aimed at. Is it aimed at teenagers? Is it aimed at adults? I mean, that's stranger things all over, isn't it? Exactly. There is that aspect of it. Uh, it doesn't sort of buy into 80s nostalgia, so clearly missing a trick there, Netflix. But, yeah. So all right, is what I would say about it. If there's a second series, which there clearly will be, then I'll watch it. Well, there will be, because you've watched it. 
Yeah. Oh, God, it's all my fault. Yeah. Anyway. So talking of algorithms and Netflix, there is a couple of things that I saw, because they now do a top ten list. So there were a couple of things that I saw that were appeared in the top ten list that I thought I'd check out or Mm -hmm. could check out. One of which was a stranger, but I knew you watched it, so I didn't bother. One of which is a documentary called The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Which, not to be confused with the mind of Aaron Hernandez, uh, which is quite similar. Or indeed, the drums, Fernando. (laughs) Now, what I will say is, having watched a couple of episodes of this, and I stopped, not because it was... Enjoying is never a word I'm going to use with this anyway. No. Um, But just because I had other things to do, and I haven't gone back to it. Um, I'm only really saying this now because I'm not going to recommend that anybody does or doesn't watch it. But I'm going to say now is if you see it trending and you think, oh, I'm going to jump in and see what that's about. The opening 20 minutes of it are about the most grueling thing I've ever sat through in television. It's absolutely horrific. It opens with an L.A. County ER nurse who tells the story of what happens when an eight year old young boy is brought to casualty. And she is full on fucking sobbing. When she's telling this story. And this is a tough woman who's worked in casualty for like 20 years. And it's about an eight-year-old boy who's essentially killed by his stepfather and his mother. Which is not clear, particularly from the stuff that you watch at the start. So that's why I'm saying this now. If you think about jumping in and seeing it, it is... It's pretty heavy going. It is pretty heavy going. All of that said, I think, whenever there's anything to do with like the death of a child or, you know a court case surrounding a child. People have a tendency to kind of come this odd sort of mawkish interest in it that comes from this place of, oh, what sort of person does that to a child or what sort of, like, mind could do that for a child? I don't think that's an interesting question. I think the interesting question in that situation is always, how could this happen to that child? Why weren't things in place to stop that happening? And that is absolutely 100% what this is about. Mm. It's about what went so badly wrong. So, think Baby P, think Victoria Clinton What went wrong? How the fuck was this allowed to happen when teachers, neighbours, a security guard from a building that he was in were raising the alarm? Why was nothing done to stop this? And that's where its value is. So it is grueling, but that's the question it's attempting to answer. I have one more thing to say about a documentary, but I know both of you have some documentaries that you've watched as well, so let's start with Jen. So I watched Rio and Kate Becoming a Step Family, which is a terrible, terrible... That sounds awful. I would skip oh, that yeah, title. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, but do you know what? It's well worth a watch. It's about Rio Ferdinand and his new wife, Kate, uh, formerly right, I believe, before they were married. Um, so it's basically about... It's kind of picking up in a way where he left off in his previous documentary, which was, I think it's called Being Mum and Dad or something like that. It was about the the death of his wife at a like, horrifically young age to breast cancer and then bringing up his three kids afterwards. And then he met Kate and they got together and she moved in with him, I think, after two years, I think they said, and, they, and they're now married. But it's basically about her sort of coming into the family and I guess filling the void as it were left by his late wife Rebecca and um do you know what I I thought it was really interesting there are some really really like touching moments in it um 
like they go to some Kate and Rio go to some like bereavement sort of counselling sessions for kids who are in step families as a result of the death of like one or I guess one of their parents um and like some of that is is really like touching and um it's quite interesting it's not something I've ever really thought about that much before because I've not been in that situation um and the kids they talk to are like fantastic just like really really I hate saying like brave in the context of stuff like this because it's just I think it's really condescending but but like they they just they come across so well considering like all the stuff that they've been through and also what I think is worth saying is that the balls on her on Kate for doing this because they don't shy away from things and they don't try to make it like oh you know she's just doing everything to please you know like she's not doing everything necessary to please she is actually like she's gotten to a point where she's a bit like actually what about me like I'm important too and I have to live in I have to slot into this family and sort of almost take the place of this mythical kind of you know the memory of this woman and do it in a way that is sensitive to these kids but also like I have my own needs and things like that and they do some things in it like they take some of her photos down and they put them in a different room and they like she wants to redecorate the kitchen and stuff like that which I I think you know are totally totally reasonable things to want to do in her situation but you just know that as a woman she's gonna get so much shit and abuse for putting her like putting her needs out there basically so I just thought like fucking fair play to her it was really honest it was really warm and I actually thought and I wasn't expecting this um basically because I'm a snob but I thought she came across really well that's like my family what's that well, my mum... Oh, you're, yeah, sorry, your actual family. Yeah, my family. So um, my stepdad and Aaron came into our lives when Aaron was four and um, his mum died when he was two. So, yeah, my mum had to very much step into that. I was 16. What a fun household. <laughs> <laughs> Perimenopausal woman, 16-year-old, four-year-old and Steve. Um, yeah, and I think it was hard. There were definitely things that were tough i also think it's really interesting and good that they're making a documentary about that and obviously that's got a sadness to do with becoming a step family that's different to when divorces happen etc but so many families these days aren't your 2.4 average i think yeah but yet that is still seen as unusual when actually it's not so i might give that a watch it sounds really interesting i think it's it's worth it i've i've I'm not going to say I enjoyed it because that feels like a weird thing to say given the subject matter, but I found it, I felt like I learned something from it. And yeah. yeah. Great. Mick, what documentary did you watch? I watched some more monkeys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hello, I like animals. I watched Night on Earth, which is a Netflix uh, nature documentary narrated by Samira Wiley. And it's great. It's all filmed in night vision. and it's, Was it the last one you watched narrated by Samira Wiley? No, I mentioned it in the Bush Telegraph. Yeah. Oh, said okay. I'd seen an episode because she kept doing really weird emphasis and I liked it. Uh, so, yeah, we saw some pumas and <laughs> some monkeys. She says monkey's fine. 
it's really, really clever, the technology they're using. And actually what's fascinating is it's showing up behavior in animals that they've not seen before. So there's a pack of cheetahs who can hunt at night. Some lions take down an elephant, which I didn't even know was a thing, but they're doing it in the pitch black. And it's really odd because you're watching it and obviously they've, they've got these magical cameras that mean that you can see everything and it's not quite daylight but you can like see Buffalo everything Bill. <laughs> <laughs> not quite that everything then the monkeys stitch each other together <laughs> puts the lotion on its skin um, no not quite that what i mean is so you can see stuff so you sort of forget that this this herd of elephants that are trying to move through what they know is a, a pride of lions it's pitch black and they're moving by scent and by hearing, and one of them gets stranded, hence why the lions manage to take her down. But you kind of think, oh, why didn't she just sit? Oh, yeah, they can't see anything. But it's it's so good. It's so good. Once you get past... Samira's got some weird intonations, but they, they become very endearing. And I, I love a nature documentary, and it's it's a very good addition to the pantheon. Give us Great. an example of a weird intonation. She starts sentences. Yeah, she does weird sort of. What does she say? Cadence within her sentences. So she'll be like, "And the lion goes to the underpass," and you're like, "Is she like talk on underpass. the underpass?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Samira, show me some monkeys at night time. <laughs> it's a bit like that. Okay, I watched one thing which isn't on the telly, but it doesn't mean you can't find it. So. As you all know, I'm a big fan of Ken Burns. Ken Burns made a documentary in 1990, I think, called The Civil War, which is generally regarded as, like, the best thing on the Civil War, sort of, or the best resource on television on the Civil War. However, you know, times have changed since 1990, and people have, like, come to the conclusion, and I agree with this wholeheartedly, that as a military documentary, it is flawless as a cultural documentary, it has huge holes in it. If you take, for example, the fact that Professor Barbara Fields, who is the most qualified talking head that they have on it, has the least screen time. And Shelby Foote, a historian who wanders quite a lot into the Lost Cause territory, has the most time on it. You know, there are holes about the experiences of non-white people in the South. But what are you going to do when you've made this documentary that's like, you know, taken years and a huge amount of money? How do you remake it without, like, recovering the same ground and all of that stuff? PBS finally solved this problem last year when it made a documentary called Reconstruction, which is about the reconstruction of the South after the Civil War by a professor of colour called Henry Louis Gates Jr. Basically shows the experience of former slaves in, in the broken South basically, after that, and their experiences, until about, probably for about 20 or 30 years during Reconstruction, as well as the ones that, because America's growing at this point, so lots of African-Americans or lots of former slaves went west, went to Kansas, went to places like that. Um, mm. Also what it meant for uh, people of colour in, like, free people of colour in the north. It's brilliant, and I have been trying to watch this for absolutely ages, because despite the fact that it is free to watch, and PBS have it on their website free to watch, if you live in this country, mm. you are not allowed to watch it. Well, some kind soul has finally put it on YouTube in all its three and a half hours glory, and it is really great. I will put a link in the description to this podcast. 
because it's quite hard to find, but it's brilliant. And it has a what I can only describe as a truly satisfying amount of stuff about Ida B. Wells, who is probably, like, top ten American of all time and not so much talked about and is brilliant. So if anyone wants to watch that, it is there. It has a lot of, you know, a lot of women's voices, a lot of African-American voices on it, and that is what clearly, clearly was missing from Civil War. So I feel like PBS have done themselves a solid by commissioning something that's you know speaks to other people's experiences because like i say if you want to know how the american civil war was fought the civil war is definitively going to tell you that if you want to know why it was fought it's it needed something more complex than that Mm -hmm. and this is it i think cool so there we go anybody else got anything else to say that was a shitload of telly, guys. Mm, wasn't it? We have, we have just watched television. I'm going to save you the liar, I think. <laughs> I'm not going to go into any more detail on that ITV. Is drama. anyone alive out there? <laughs> Hannah Dunleavy's Outside the Box.